You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you are new here, my name is Jamin. I'm one of the pastors. Welcome to Citizens Church. If you're watching online, maybe you've been doing that for a long time, or maybe this is your first time. Welcome. Um, Occasionally, I'll have a conversation with people who don't go to our church, who know about our church and know about my role here at our church, and they'll just ask a simple question, how is Citizens Church doing? And my standard response, uh, not because uh, it's trite, uh, but, but because it's so true, my standard response is that God has been so kind to Citizens Church. He has just been so kind. And, and usually uh, there are a couple things that come to mind that uh, substantiate that claim. It's the way that God has sustained us over these early years as a new church, uh, it's you, the people that, that are here, the people that God is, is bringing here, and, and that's how I see God's kindness. And then one of the things I always mention, because it always comes to mind, is one of the ways God has been so kind to our church is through the men and women that he has brought to serve here on staff. Uh, we have an embarrassment of riches in the pastors and the ministers who call this church both their place of worship and their place of work. Uh, and this morning, you get to hear from uh, one of those. Uh, Mike M. is preaching this morning. It's his first time to preach here at Citizens Church. And uh, Mike is uh, not new to Citizens. He's been at our church for, uh, he'll tell you all about it, but he's been at our church for over a decade. He is newer to staff. He's been on staff uh, just under nine months. Uh, and Mike is going to come and he's going to preach uh, this morning and excited to be led by him and for God to speak through him. And what I want to do is I just want to make uh, explicit what is implicitly communicated in him preaching. So explicitly, I want to say this, that what the elders of Citizens Church believe to be true about Mike is that Mike has uh, the gifts of a preacher and the character of a pastor. And uh, we love him, and we are blessed by him. And so, Mike, would you, would you come, and I'll pray for you, and then uh, you lead us, brother. If you would like to clap, you could clap. That would be appropriate. Father, thank you for my brother. Thank you for my friend. I thank you, God, for the way that you have uh, created this man. Uh, Lord, you've just given him an ability to understand complicated things, but not just that. You've given him an ability to synthesize those things and make them understandable. Uh, And I thank you that he will uh, bless us through that gift today. I thank you more than for his gifts. I thank you for his life. I thank you for Uh, his family, for his wife, Kathy. I thank you for their many years of faithfulness here at our church. And so, uh, Lord, as those of us um, not preaching this morning who are listening, I pray that you would prepare our hearts uh, to receive what you have put uh, on his heart to share. Uh, Lord, we are not, as Christians here, uh, the ones sitting in the chairs, uh, we are not here uh, simply to enjoy a service. We're definitely not here to critique a sermon. We are here to be critiqued by your word, God. And so would you prepare our hearts for just that? We love you and we thank you. Amen. Would you welcome Mike again? All right. Good morning, everyone. For those of you who are visiting for the first time to Citizens Church, welcome. And for those of you who've been with us through this uh, last eight weeks of the Wisdom and Wonder series, welcome back. We're so glad that you're with us today. My name is Mike M, and I'm the Connections Minister here at Citizens Church. Um, As Jamin said, I've been married to my wonderful wife, Kathy, for 12 years. 
And we've been a part of this church almost exactly that long. We joined right after we got married. So I've been a part of this church for over a decade, as Jamin said, as members. But I just joined staff less than a year ago, about eight and a half, nine months ago. Um, so I'm the new guy. So be nice. <laughs> Sometimes people ask me, hey, uh, where are you from? Where's your hometown? And it's a little hard for me to answer because we moved around a lot. I was born in Korea. Then we moved to Hawaii. Then we moved to Lincoln, Nebraska. Go Cornhuskers. <laughs> where I started elementary school. And then when I was 10, my family moved down to New Orleans, Louisiana. And I lived there from fourth grade until I graduated high school. So usually what I say is that I'm from New Orleans. Let me open up our time today uh, with a story from my childhood growing up in New Orleans. It's a bit of a difficult story. So I was one of the only Asian kids in my school. And I was really scrawny and I was really short and I had these ridiculous Steve Urkel glasses. So I got bullied a lot. When I was about 12 or 13 years old, I was getting my school lunch in the cafeteria. And it was lasagna that day. It was a good day. But as I was getting out of line, someone tripped me. And I, I fell forward. And fell onto my knees and the hot lasagna splashed up onto my face, onto my chest. It plastered my glasses and I couldn't hardly see anything. And of course, the whole cafeteria erupted in laughter and that sarcastic clapping. I know you know it well. And I just, I just froze. I just froze there on my hands and my knees covered in a soggy red mess. And kids started yelling and mocking me. Dork, idiot! And I, I remember looking up at the kids that I was standing in line with, my friends, and they were just frozen there, looking at me on the ground. Not sure what to do. Embarrassed to be seen with me in my humiliation. And then suddenly I felt a hand on my shoulder, and I looked up, and it was a different kid, a kid that I didn't usually hang out with. And he got down on his hands and his knees, and he started scooping up the lasagna with his hands and putting it on the tray. And the other kids started calling him the same names they were calling me. Now, let me ask you this. Was that wise of him? Or was he a fool? And how can you tell? For the past... Eight weeks, we have been taking a deep look at an idea, an idea the Bible calls wisdom. And we've defined wisdom in a specific way, living in God's world in God's way. And we have talked about how there are three important facets of wisdom. Wisdom has a posture, wisdom has a pace, and wisdom has a person. First, wisdom's posture is low. It's humble. And wisdom's pace is slow. It's steady. And finally, wisdom has a person. His name is Jesus. And we grow wise only in relationship with him. Today, we're going to be talking about that third facet, that Jesus Christ is wisdom personified. And this is, this is so important because there is a way of having a kind of wisdom that amounts to a wasted life, a foolish life, 
Look at me, look at me. If you miss this, if you miss that Jesus Christ is wisdom personified, then nothing in our whole wisdom series will have mattered at all. Now, I'm going to be breaking this down into three parts for those of you who like outlines, who are taking notes. First part, the principles of wisdom. Second part, the person of wisdom. Third part, the paradox of wisdom. The principles of wisdom are the concepts, the ideas, the rules, the advice taught by wisdom. The ancient Greeks called this the logos. The person of wisdom is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as I've said. And thirdly, the paradox of wisdom is that the deepest wisdom looks foolish. That Jesus sometimes looks like a fool. And following him sometimes feels foolish. That is not an accident. It's by design. Now, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them, and I'll tell you where we're going to be. We're going to be in two places. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, and also in Revelation chapter 5. So go ahead and find those places. Stick a bookmark or a pencil or your finger. Uh, it's going to take us a while to get there, but I'll let you know, and I wanted to let you get prepared. Okay. Part one, the principle of wisdom. All right, let me start off by telling you about the gut and the toe. Now, you don't have to suck in your stomach. It's okay. I'm not talking about body parts. Gut and toe are acronyms, G-U-T-T-O-E. They're acronyms. They're not body parts. They're scientific concepts from theoretical physics. I promise this is not a TED Talk. Okay? Gut stands for grand unified theory. Toe stands for the theory of everything. Simply put, these two ideas put together is the idea that there might be a single, elegant, all-encompassing theory or formula that would fully explain and connect every single aspect of the universe. That you might be one day able to print off the secret source code of the universe and put it on a t-shirt. If you've ever heard of the God particle, if you've ever heard of the Large Hadron Collider and wondered what that was all about, that's what it's about. They're researching the gut and the toe. And the discovery of the theory of everything is the ultimate aim of modern physics. But this goal is actually not a modern one. It's a very ancient one. More than 300 years before the New Testament was ever written, the Greeks were already searching for the theory of everything. They called it the logos. L-O-G-O-S. To them, it meant something more like the reason for everything. They created entire schools and had different factions that would argue with each other. What is the Logos? How will you know when you found it? This word Logos is where we get the word logic to reason. You can also add it to the end of a word to denote a deep understanding of that word. For example, if you study biology, you should have a deep understanding of life. Assuming you study. <laughs> if you take psychology, you will gain a deeper understanding of the mind. And if you want to have a deeper understanding of God, you will study what? Theology, right? But what if you don't want to understand just one thing? What if you want to understand everything? Then you need to seek the Logos, the Logos itself. Now, these, these people, these scholars that would 
seek after the Logos, they had a very humble name for themselves. They called themselves the lovers of wisdom. Lovers of Sophia, the philosophers. And for more than 300 years before Jesus ever stepped foot on the earth, the ancient Greeks organized entire swaths of their culture to chase wisdom, to apply it, to reveal the reason for everything, the logos. They desperately wanted to know the secret that would explain why everything exists. Where did it come from? Where is it going? What is this all for? Knowing this, the apostle John intentionally and provocatively used their precious word, logos, in writing the introduction to his gospel. Look at John 1.1. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. The word logos is translated word in our English Bibles. Now let me be very clear. By using this loaded word, the Apostle John is not saying that Jesus is merely a scientific principle to be understood and to be discovered, but he knew that Jesus was a person to be loved, trusted, and obeyed. That's why he says a few verses later, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What he's doing is kind of teasing that some missed the person of wisdom because they're only looking for the principles of wisdom. I know it's really sad. <laughs> One of the church fathers, Augustine, summarized Greek philosophy this way in his book, The Confessions. He says this, A certain man brought me some of the books of the philosophers and the Platonists, translated from Greek into Latin. And although they didn't use these exact same words, I found in their writings all kinds of arguments basically saying thus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. But I never found in any of their writings the Word became flesh. I also found them stating in a variety of ways the Logos is by nature equal to God. But in none of their books have I ever found the Logos equal to God emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Or that the Logos equal to God humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Augustine expresses amazement at how much the Greeks actually had discovered about God, about his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature by what has been made. But every time he notes how they only ever saw the principles and never met the person. At the end of this chapter of his confession, he writes this about the Greek philosophers. It is one thing to see the promised land, the land of peace from a wooded mountain top, but fail to find the way and struggle hopelessly as in a wilderness. It's quite another to actually find the way and to cling to him. If wisdom is living in God's world, in God's way, that can actually mean two things. If God's way is just a principle, a list, a system, then it depends on you, on your talent, on your understanding, on your study. But if God's way is also a person, it depends on love. It depends on faith. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He did not say, I show the way, the truth, and the life. That is the difference between the principles of wisdom and the person of wisdom. Do you see that? The Greeks knew an astonishing amount about the principles of wisdom. Their books are studied to this day, thousands of years later. But they were wholly ignorant about the person of wisdom, Jesus Christ. So you might be thinking, okay, I guess, there's a difference between a principle and a person. Yeah, obvious. But why is it that, a wi that wisdom is a person in the first place? I'm glad you asked. Part two. The person of wisdom. All right. Now remember, wisdom has a posture. It's low. And wisdom has a pace. It, it is slow. But how is it that you will stay low and walk slow and not give up? What is the secret in staying in wisdom's low posture and following wisdom's slow pace without burning out? To explain this, let me tell you a story that some of you might already know. The Bible tells us in the book of Joshua about the story of the conquest of the mighty fortress of Jericho. The army of Israel marched around its walls and miraculously the walls came tumbling down, giving Israel the victory. You know the story? Now, I want you to imagine actually being there. Israel has left the wilderness. They've entered into the promised land. The army of Israel is camped across from the mighty fortress of Jericho. A mighty fortress that has never been beaten because of its walls, thick and unscalable. Now imagine yourself, you are Joshua. You are a young man trying to fill impossibly big sandals. Your mentor, Moses, used to perform amazing miracles. He would hear directly from God. And for some reason, he's chosen you to be his successor. And you look at Jericho. No one's ever beaten it. But you have a duty to your men and to your people. You are the commander of the Lord's army after all. How did Moses do it? You get your clothes on and you go out to scout the city. And as you're scouting, you see a mysterious man holding a sword. You look at him and you ask him, are you for us or are you for them? And he smiles mysteriously and he says, neither, but I am the commander of the Lord's army and now I've come. It's a very strange scene, isn't it? Now back at camp, you call a war council, all your captains, all your lieutenants, to share the secret strategy commanded to you by God. The secret strategy that will overcome the invincible walls of Jericho. And the meeting starts. Okay, guys. He told me, we have to take the whole army. We can't keep any men in reserve. We take the whole army and then we march around the city just one time. Oh, oh, and no one is allowed to talk. Uh, that's really important. No noises, right? Yes. Uh, question, Joshua. Uh, uh, it, and then what? Right. Uh, we come back here. 
Oh, uh, and then the next day we do it again. We, we just do, the, do this every day. We just march and remember no talking. Uh, surely there's more. I'm not done, silly. Okay, okay, this is the most important part. On the seventh day, we walk around the city seven times. And then after the seventh time, is it, we blast the trumpets and you shout, ah! And that's it, that's the plan. Now tell me, does that sound like wisdom to you? Or is that the stupidest thing you've ever heard? Imagine how that must have played out. Imagine the faces of the soldiers as the plan is explained. The questions they begin to ask that you have no answers for. But it's the first day. They're excited, hopeful. You go out marching in front, all the men marching behind you, marching silently. No one talks. No one talks, except for the soldiers on the wall, the soldiers in the mighty fortress. They laugh, and they curse, and they throw things. But your men, they stay silent until you get back to camp. And like a good general, you're walking among your men, checking their morale. The men are confused, but they're hopeful. You hear them whispering, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it'll be better, right? Yeah, he knows what he's doing. He heard from the Lord, right? Yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> and a second day passes and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth. Can you feel the eyes of your men boring a hole in the back of your neck? A little bit more every day. There are unasked questions burning their parched lips. The sun is a little hotter every day. The march seems a little longer every day. The taunting gets more intense every day. But you keep your head down, and you march in the dust. Let me ask you, have you ever felt like this? How long do I have to keep this up, God? How long do I go like this? How long do I, I keep forgiving this hurtful person? How long do I pray for my family member without an answer? For my marriage without an answer? For healing without an answer. How long are you going to let me suffer like this, God? What is it all for? Please tell me. I've been laid low, my face in the dirt. I've been going slow, so slow. I'm trying to be obedient, Lord. But if I'm honest, it doesn't feel like wisdom. I feel like a fool. I feel like I've been abandoned in the desert and just told to march. I'm not making any progress. I'm literally walking in circles. Is this all just a waste of my time? What is it that kept Joshua and the armies of Israel marching? Hebrews 11.30 says this. It is by faith that the walls of Jericho fell down. But my question to you is, faith in what? Does the wisdom found in this story depend on Joshua having faith in a wise principle of warfare? 
Or does it depend on having faith in the wise person whose promises never fail? Why is it that following wisdom can feel like folly so often? And to know that, we have to understand the difference between the principles of wisdom and the person of wisdom. Part three, the paradox of wisdom. Now we're ready to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the, of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Amen. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. All right, do you see it? Do you see it in this passage? When God revealed what Paul will call in the very next chapter, the secret and hidden wisdom of God, everyone called it foolishness. Have you ever wondered why God's war strategy was something as stupid as silent marching? What do you think the soldiers thought when the walls began to burst apart at the seams, when the, when the bricks themselves began to disintegrate into dust? Do you think any of them said, oh, actually, guys, I think that was me. That was me. I bet you didn't notice, but like when we were marching, I was like stomping extra hard just in case. You know, so, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's all good. If this is such a sound strategy, why is it that we never read that the army of the Lord ever tried it again when they faced another walled city? Why did God command them to do this stupid thing? Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God did not command them to do it even though it looked foolish, but because it looked foolish. Trusting in God is, actually, is not ever actually foolish, but it definitely looks foolish to the fool. Jericho looked like folly, but it was a massive victory. How much more foolish, then, must the cross have looked? The Jews were expecting a conquering king, and they got a suffering servant. The king of glory was crowned not with gold, but with thorns. The cross looked like the end of Christ, 
But not just that. It looked like the end of all of God's promises. It looked like God was a lying fool and that his enemies would win. All of God's promises nailed to a piece of wood. But we preach the folly of Christ crucified because the Bible says that God was doing something in and through the folly of the cross, something deeply wise. He was winning us to himself. This is the paradox of wisdom. Jesus, the wisdom of God, took on our folly that we might abide with wisdom. Jesus, the author of life, took on our death that we might gain eternal life. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin that we might be called the righteousness of God. Everything about the person of wisdom, the prince of wisdom, confounds the expectations of the world. And his kingdom, of which we are citizens, is the same. In his kingdom, the last is first, and the first is last. Power is made perfect in weakness. The mighty are laid low, and the low are lifted up. It's the blind who see, and the poor the hungry who are called the blessed ones. In his kingdom, only those who declare that they are sinners are the ones declared righteous. Those who pride themselves as the lovers of wisdom are called fools by God. But those who admit that they are simple, stubborn, that they are fools, are given the secret and hidden wisdom of God declared before the foundations of the earth. Is this wisdom, or does this sound like nonsense to you? But why? Why is it that the highest, most sacred wisdom of God willingly subjects himself like this, humiliates himself this way? Turn to Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation 5, John is describing a scene in the very throne room of God. There is a scroll that explains everything that is hidden, everything that is secret. It is the Logos. A question is asked. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll, to break its seals? He's asking, who can explain the Logos to us? Where did everything come from? What is the reason for everything? Where is this all going? What is the point of it all? What is the meaning? Is there any meaning? Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to even look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Why is John weeping? John is weeping because no one is found worthy to explain the questions that burn our hearts. He says, no one can explain it to us. Seriously? That's what you're saying? 
No one knows. It was all meaningless. It's all a cosmic joke. All the wars and all the disease and all the suffering and all the injustice and all the abuse. All those sleepless nights, it was for nothing. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And John breaks down weeping. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. For behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Okay, this is the key. This is the key. What is John told to look for? A lion. But what does he see when he turns to see the lion? Verse 6. And I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He looks for a lion and he sees the opposite, a slain lamb. He expects to see a mighty, powerful king, a conqueror. And he sees the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. This is the breathtaking wisdom and folly of God. This is the paradox of God's wisdom. Verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign forever on the earth. The apostle Paul put it like this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory of that is to be revealed to us. But it is only the lamb who was slain, the suffering king who is worthy to explain your suffering to you. It is not enough to seek the principles of wisdom. You can master them all and still miss the person and the prince of wisdom. If I am inspired by the principles in Proverbs 31 that we looked at last week. To get up early and to run a successful import-export business. To master real estate appraisal. But I miss the person of Proverbs 31 that I am not wise. I am a fool. What does it profit me if I gain the world and I lose my soul? If I have all knowledge and I can explain all mysteries, but I don't have God's love, I have not gained anything. Proverbs 8 says this, Whoever finds me finds life and obtains the favor of the Lord. Who does that sound like? But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. When Joshua was marching with his men, around that mighty fortress of Jericho. What is it that sustained him when his face was bowed low, when his pace was so slow, making circles in the desert, being laughed at by his enemies? It was not the principles he was trusting. It's that he had met the person who is worthy of all blessing and honor, and glory. He was not daunted by the mighty fortress of Jericho because he had met the mighty fortress who is our God. What then shall we say? 
are the principles of wisdom of no worth? By no means. If it were not for the principles of wisdom, we would never have met the person of wisdom. Living in God's world and God's way means following the principles of wisdom, yes. But more than that, it means in and through them we see the person of wisdom. Don't miss that. It is only Jesus Christ who took on shame, who took on sin, who took on folly, who is worthy to be called the wisdom of God. If you fancy yourself too smart for this, too wise for this, I urge you to repent, to embrace the folly of the cross. He was broken for you. I asked at the beginning, was it wise for that kid to enter into my humiliation? The answer is yes. And we know that because that is what Jesus did. Hurting brother and struggling sister, listen to me. The posture of wisdom is low, yes, and that can be painful. And the pace of wisdom is, is slow, and that can be frustrating. It can be agonizing. But the person of wisdom is Jesus. And if you put your trust in him, he is right there with you. On his hands, on his knees, scooping up the splattered mess of your life with his nail-pierced hands. He is always present, always kind, always eager to extend tenderness grace and mercy as we stumble forward living in Jesus' world in Jesus' way. I am not ashamed to be called a fool for Christ because he was not ashamed to be called a fool for me. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we beg you, give us wisdom. Let us not pass by her house, but let us enter in. Let us tarry there. Let us linger. Let us eat wisdom's food. Let us drink wisdom's cup. Lord, in wisdom's ways, open our eyes to wisdom's aim, Christ Jesus. God, let us not be ashamed of the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. Let, let us not be ashamed of the king who washes the feet of sinners like us, who wipes away the tears of the brokenhearted like us, who teaches wisdom to fools like us. Lord, teach us the secret, hidden wisdom of the folly of the cross so that we can follow you, Lord, low and slow, faithful till the end. We pray all these things in the only one who is wise, the only one who is worthy, the mighty fortress, Jesus Christ.